on the air and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Today on Soundtrack Allen. Listen as Eric Woods and I delve deep into the post-apocalyptic world of Waterworld. We'll discuss the film, its interesting background, the clever use of the Universal logo, and of course the score by James Newton Howard. It's all today, and it begins now. Andrews. I'm your host, and it's great to be back with you, Eric. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be back with you once again. I can't remember what was the last show we did together. We did Jurassic Park. Did Jurassic Park? Yeah, it's been. It seems like it's been forever ago, and mm-hmm. uh, it seems like it's been forever ago since we uh, recorded Legend. <laughs> I think we recorded it, and then a month later, I edited it, and then we finally released it. So, um, yeah, it has been a while since you and I had a. Had a good chat about a movie here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And today we get to talk about Waterworld. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, every time you talk about this, you, you just can't wait to get into it. So I'm kind of interested to really? hear. Uh, well, it, well, yeah. Why is it one of your favorite movies? Why? Because I saw it when it came out to theaters and I was not out of high school yet, but there was a local theater inside the largest mall in Omaha at the time, it was Westroads. And they had a sixplex theater, and I saw many of my beloved favorite movies there. But this one impressed me so much because not only was it the really first time I was so deeply aware of the film score, but I was really enthralled with the action, and I had seen Mad Max prior to seeing Waterworld, and it incur- it really like amped up my energy for enjoying the movie, and it had like a perfect blend of excitement and danger and action and comedy and awe and wonder, and then. My friend at the time, he knew I liked the the film. And then for graduation, he bought me the score on CD. And it had it had pretty much been 
the first CD that was ever gifted to me. And I played that score so much that about eight months ago, I had to replace it because I had worn it out so much because I had listened to it constantly. It wore was out my, a CD? I wore out a CD. How, it was like, so it, scratched, uh, so worn out <laughs> because I had played it too much. <laughs> and it would skip, like it would literally skip at certain points in the CD because I would play that track quite often. And I'm like, really? This is the one track that I really like and you skip. So I had to buy me a new CD. Well, thank goodness we have uh, La La Land's Expanded Edition now. Thank, thank goodness. Yeah. But this movie is just a perfect post-apocalyptic movie and it's so much fun and I know it was very expensive but it was just awesome it just really was it was so awesome how about for you when when did you first see the movie yeah this was an amazing time for me uh going to the movies um uh be mainly because my, my friend uh Tim, uh, my best friend, uh, was uh, well, is still uh, legally blind, and so he basically has like tunnel vision. And the way he explained it to me was like, if you put two straws in front of your eyes, that's what he sees. So he can see, but you know, like he has no peripheral vision, can't see in the dark. So the great thing about um, that, if there is any, you know, positives. Uh, the CNIB here in Canada, um, they offer a, you know, you're part of it and you get this card. And the thing is about this card is that as a blind person, you're offered free services within, I guess, the city or even in the province or maybe even in the country. And so one of those things is like free transportation to get around. And on top of that, you can go see movies for free. And but he needs somebody to be with him. So the guide, which is usually me, gets in for free as well. And he needed a guide. He did. He couldn't see, you know, being in the theater. So we'd all have to always have to sit in the back. It was always dark. Um, he couldn't see a darn thing in the dark theater. But once the screen lit up, he could see the movie just fine. And so uh, this is 1995 and we were just out of control watching movies. It was, it was absolutely insane. And, and, and everything that was new came out. We were like, we were on the bus. We were, we'd go downtown to our favorite theater and uh, we'd watch a movie. And sometimes we see three movies in a weekend. Uh, I remember when the Star Wars special editions came out, we watched Star Wars, Empire and Jedi on the same day. Um, it's just great. Like we literally went back in line after Star Wars and then we said, hey, we're going in to watch Empire. Then we got dinner and went to see Return of the Jedi. It was, I mean, we saw everything, everything imaginable. So Waterworld was one of these movies. And um, I can remember it vividly because we did talk about it afterwards. We had heard the stories about, you know, the, the, it was running over budgets. It's one of the most expensive movies ever made. And I think at the time it was the most expensive film um, ever made because of all the issues they were having. They had to rebuild the Atoll, I think after either a hurricane or, or something destroyed it. And so there was all this negative press. And so 
you know, it was keeping people away from the theaters and we were kind of hesitant on going to see it. I mean, even though the film actually turned out to be a box office success. Um, so we were like, oh, I think we saw a couple of other movies before we decided to go Waterworld. I'm like, yeah, do you want to go see Waterworld? We're like, ah, oh, what the heck? I mean, we're not doing anything here on Sunday, so let's go. So I didn't know what to expect. I, re- I really didn't. And um, and I had no idea about the, the behind the scenes issues with the score or anything like that. Um, I was relatively new into soundtracks and like actually paying attention to it. It was like around 1993 where I really, really, really got into it. And I started buying scores and, and whatnot. So I went in and and I, I can remember the whole opening sequence with the, the with the smokers and and then hearing that score explode with James and Howard's you know main theme for the Mariner and 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 just the sheer amount of fun the film eventually turned out to be. And afterwards, we talked about it, we're like this wasn't bad. This was actually a really good time at the movies and we we really really enjoyed it and i didn't see it again until many many years later i guess when it came out on dvd and the funny thing is about that score i remember the theme i, I don't remember much much about it afterwards but then i was oh god i think it was in like second year of college and i was on talking online with somebody and i think it was uh, somebody who had um was a webmaster of one of the early john williams web pages and you know he said yeah, have you ever heard Waterworld. I'm like, oh yeah, I saw the movie, but I don't own the score. And he says, it's like one of the greatest action scores ever written. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I got to go and pick up the greatest action soundtrack of all time. And Sam the Record Man in Limeridge Mall in Hamilton, and I, I remember exactly where it was, picked it up, ran home and listened to that album. And I was just absolutely blown away. Track after track of just beautiful themes, thunderous uh, action music, uh, it was just a phenomenal, phenomenal listen, and, and the guy was right. It, 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 it is still it, to this day. It still remains one of the the best action adventure scores I think ever written. And even James Newton Howard would tell you that he just threw everything at this one. He was he was still relatively new. He had he had I mean he'd written I think at that time about forty scores in maybe seven years or so. And he you know he gets this job after Mark Isham was let go, and I. He, and the thing about Kevin Costner, he's pretty much hands off when it comes down to writing music. So he, James and Howard is pretty much free to go. And he threw everything in this. And it is just absolutely superb. So again, yeah, well, after seeing the movie again, uh, home video, uh, I thought, wow, this is pretty darn good. It's 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 great. And then seeing it again uh, a couple of weeks ago, we're in a time frame where CGI is is dominating a lot of the summer blockbusters and to see practical effects, as many practical effects in this movie, and so little CGI. And again, I have nothing against CGI, but today they would make this with, you know, tons of uh, computer-generated this and fake that. Fake it, 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 it would yeah. yeah, fake backgrounds. It just, they wouldn't have filmed on the water. So just seeing an actual functioning boat and great cinematography of, of like, Everything's in the frame, and, and what's in the frame was actually shot, with the exception of a couple of CGI monsters and whatnot, and, and a couple of other visual effects. But I mean, the practicality of it, like a literal atoll, they built that thing. Mm-hmm. It was a yeah, it was, living city on the water. Yeah, it, let me see. I had that. It said it was a quarter mile in circumference, the size of a football statement stadium, contained a million tons of steel. I mean, that's just crazy. It's just crazy. And I'm, I'm glad they did it. I mean, I, I know it, it, 
I, I think they got destroyed. They had to rebuild it. And it was on it, a rotating I mean, platform. You, you just appreciate that. I appreciate <laughs> so that. Cool. I, I appreciate the the man hours, the the actual construction. You know, you know, real hands had to build that. You can actually go on it. You can stage like the whole action scene at the atoll is absolutely incredible. And that I I I that stuff resonates with me. That stuff genuinely thrills me. And so, yeah, anytime I can see a real chase, real cars, real anything like, I mean, crying out loud, there's a real sky boat in this. Um, and the, and it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, I'm, I appreciate it every time I see it, especially now in this day and age um, where I can see practical effects and and great practical effects and in real sets and real stunts like Kevin Costner was doing most of his stunts in this movie as well I just all that I you know maybe there's flaws about the movie but I appreciate all of the effort that went into making this I I really do love it mm-hmm. me too it's just one of my favorite films and uh, favorite film scores it is one of my tops like if if I had a a level of three main film scores that reach my level, it's Waterworld, Crawl, and The Wrath of Khan. It's all I great mean, stuff. Those are three main scores. I mean, of course, I have many more, but you know, those yeah. three. <laughs> Yeah, there's always these scores you can always think of, like, well, what am I going to listen to today? And if you can't figure it out, you always have these ones you you can always reach for and and always have a have a good time with. And I mean, and you're thinking about, I mean, I know we're talking about the score still, but I mean, just think about the type of career that James Newton Howard was having in the early to mid '90s and and what he was writing. I mean, well, the package, I guess you can say, is one of his early action scores written in 1989. Um, but he was doing a lot of comedies, a lot of dramas, and then we get into, you know, Alive and The Fugitive, and then just a year earlier, and this is how Kevin Costner found James Newton Howard, Wyatt Earp, and I mean, you're talking about one of his career, I mean, career best scores. And just think about you hear that, which is a stunning uh, creation. And then just a year later, having what was it, three, four, five weeks to to write the music for Waterworld, and he's just still on fire. And then of course there's Outbreak as well. And so 
he was just getting started, but he was still writing extraordinary uh, music earlier on in his career. One of the things that that was in the uh, notes about his career was he used Goldsmith as a model for his career, for a lot of the, the influence on his music. It was Goldsmith. And I thought that was just brilliant. It just, it was so cool because he had been quoted and he said that Goldsmith was one of the biggest influences for him to do the score. Howard said that Goldsmith's writing had a grandeur of his action sequence. They weren't fast. They weren't slow in tempo. Uh, That really stands out to me. This score has so many moments that are not excitingly fast, but they are well-conceived, brilliant set pieces of music that are not crazy, but still full of oomph and stands out in the score. And it's so true. I think the action music... I wouldn't say that it's necessarily Goldsmithian, but I can understand where he's talking about because he's he doesn't necessarily have to hit every sync point in the scene, and he can and you're right, he doesn't have to go over the top crazy and frenetic in order to make it exciting. And you know that's what gives the score the score is still always moving forward, which a lot of Jerry's scores do as well. Like the action music is just keeping you moving forward and keeping the scene going. James Newton Howard does a lot of that in this in this film. But I mean, the big Jerry Goldsmith influence in Waterworld is not necessarily action music. It was the prodigal child theme that he wrote. you listen to it um when when jerry goldsmith is doing those kind of uh lush uh intimate type of scenes i mean i think about a new sight from star trek insurrection that's the one that comes to mind when i'm hearing prodigal child and that's where you can definitely hear the goldsmith influence it's it's really really um uh, beautiful music You also hear it in The Secret of Nim. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That that is one of Jerry Goldsmith's favorite scores that he wrote.
and the thing is, uh, you know, some people have kind of compared this to maybe John Williams, but I don't, I wouldn't say it's John Williams, although it's, it's quite thematic, but I can remember James Newton Howard saying that he was more influenced by some of the golden age swashbucklers and especially uh, Hugo Friedhofer. Yeah, it's um, you know, I I I would like to hear what Aishim came up with, and there is one uh, piece of source music that is available on the uh, Lala Land Records release, the Music Box theme, which he had to write uh, before filming because they needed that theme and they needed Anola to sing it in the movie. Um, but I think, uh, I think if Kevin Costner wanted something that was more adventurous and not as bleak, then, you know, James Newton Howard was probably the, the right decision and, and the, maybe it was the right choice to, to, uh, get rid of, uh, uh, Mark Isham, no matter how unfair that is. You know, it's interesting to think though, I mean, we're talking about Isham and, and James Newton Howard. I mean, it, we have to explain that. You know, Kevin Reynolds was the one that originally was the director on this movie. He shot it, but it was Kevin Costner that took over because they had a dis- disagreement. Uh, Reynolds and Costner did. So Costner took over, and that's why he wanted James Newton Howard um, to score the film. Well, and even Isham's score was really, like, I guess, really bleak. And right, yeah. it was not what they were looking for. And it's probably what Reynolds... Reynolds wanted um but yeah and and the thing is I think even Aisham said that Kevin Costner was looking for somebody that he had worked with before because that makes him comfortable and he doesn't really have to uh, collaborate much you know or he he doesn't have to to guess what's going to happen with the score he knows by working with James Newton Howard that he's going to get what he needs and you know a couple simple instructions and then James Newton Howard can go out and and write the score that Kevin Costner wants. So that makes sense to me. It does make sense to me, absolutely. But I mean that. But the thing is, this this tiff. I mean, they didn't make up again until um, what Hatfield and McCoy. Yeah, um, and that and, was quite a while later. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, they had a string of um, well, there were two hits: or Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. They also uh, worked on um, they produced a film together, and then it came down to Waterworld, and it was just an absolute mess and but I think I mean for all the problems that they were having 
you know, this is not, as they say, Kevin's gate or fish tar. Because it wasn't a failure. It wasn't. No, I mean, it no. it didn't make a... It a, may have been super was, expensive to make. Yes, it was, but it was because, top 10 in the, in the United oh, States. Yeah. But it made a mm-hmm. boatload of money overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it wasn't a failure. Also, James Newton Howard, he was able to use uh, the sample library of Hans Zimmer for helping to like round out some of the cues. Yeah, the Hans Zimmer influence, I was always curious about that thank you in the credits of the original liner notes. I'm like, what did Hans Zimmer do? But yeah, Hans Zimmer, you know, heard about what had happened and he knew that James Newton Howard was under the gun. And and so, I mean, it's Hans Zimmer gave him everything. Everything that Hans Zimmer had, he threw at James Newton Howard so that you know, composing his the score and doing the electronics and all that sort of st- stuff was going to be a lot easier because with the rig that he already had, I think he said that if you wanted to just change one note, you would have to re-perform everything all over again. You just couldn't go in. And, and so with Hans Zimmer's uh, personal library and samples, it was a lot easier for for him to to kind of rejig things and and get it done. So... Yeah, that's tip my cap to Hans Zimmer for that one. And I mean, I guess that began their relationship because eventually they, I mean, they wanted to work together for the longest time and then they eventually did on the two, uh, first two Christopher Nolan Batman films. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Um, And I think that even James Newton Howard really believes that among this, this film or this score for Waterworld is among his best achievements and no doubt why because it's diverse it's thematically entertaining um even has this eclectic feel to it because it does have these exotic mystic uh allurements in the score you know there's these these elements with the choir and the unique little sounds that are added into uh, like the bells and the just the unique whistles and the didgeridoo and you know these these different elements really create this amazing swashbuckling adventure I think that it could easily have been you know just a big 90 piece orchestra but I think that you had to complement it with various different colors to match you know, the atmosphere of the world, especially water. And I think that he, you know, the twinkling of all the, you know, the, the samples and and it, it just adds, I mean, especially in one of the cues that we're going to play later, it just, there's such beauty to it as well. So, I mean, as much as this is a high octane action movie, there are some beautiful moments in it. And James Newton Howard really does help express that beauty through his music, but with a wonderful palette of organic instrumentation and electronic instruments and like I said it creates this unique palette that you really don't hear in any other score so I mean this score can't be mistaken for for anything else but Waterworld and also listening to the score on its own it's those those quieter cues that utilize you know voices in choir and the, the electronics and the samples 
and lighter orchestral touches that really gives this wonderful kind of break to the action let you breathe a bit before you're you know thrown back into it again and and that really helps the pacing of the movie as well um because this is a brisk movie i mean except for a, a kind of the bloated ending and i'm not talking about the exxon valdez i'm talking about what happens afterwards um i mean this could have been a lot shorter i think and i think everything that needed to be said was uh was said after the exxon valdez um escape um i mean coming seriously let's talk about that I mean, what in the world was the end game with the three people, including the deacon, on the jet skis yeah. going what, towards what one point? Done? What were they going to do? Like, were they just going to put on the brake? Like, <laughs> they obviously weren't going to put on the brakes because they smashed into each other. What was the yeah. end game for that one? So, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I felt that that, like, after, I personally think that the deacon's speech, the uh, the the rescue of Enola, and the sinking of the Exxon Valdez was the perfect way to end the movie. Um, because then it just, it just seems like it's, they're, they're tr trying to add something else into it and maybe actually seeing the Deacon's death. It was just so unnecessary. And it was really goofy too. I mean, the whole bungee yeah. jump and the, the effects. Were well, it was good. real though. That was real. Sure. Like he did actually bungee jump. But it is so. really, it is really ridiculous, and it's just overblown mm -hmm. at that point because you have this <laughs> incredible sequence on on the boat. You're finally on land, and and you get some great stunts, huge explosion, and just f that feels satisfying as the ending of the film. And just everything else after that seems bloated, with the exception of you know them eventually finding land, and and I like all that too. But there's just a couple of sequences, especially that sequence, that one sequence, the bungee sequence, it just seems like, oh my god, you're just, this is overkill. Because honestly, I think, I think the pace is fine. And I can't see how a three-hour version of this works at all. I mean, I know there's a few I don't think uh, it really does. You know, what I think is, is, is also interesting to talk about is the is the the reaction to the Mariner himself and him not being a likable character. And they were like, oh, Kevin Costner is just kind of like going through the paces. But I honestly do think, again, watching it back a couple of weeks ago, there's no reason for the Mariner to be a likable person. There's no reason for anybody in this world to be a likable person because nobody can trust anybody. And you see that right off the bat in the first They're sequence. They're in for themselves. Exactly. So I can see why he's so cautious and he's keeping everything, you know, close to him. He's not explaining everything. And I actually love the reveal of where he gets his dirt from. I think that's fantastic. I also love the reveal that is a mutant. I think that's utterly fascinating. And, but I can see why he's annoyed at everything. He doesn't want anybody to know what he does because once that happens, then, you know, trouble starts. And that's exactly what happens in the Atoll. They find out too much and people panic. So I don't agree with the criticism that Kevin Costner and the Mariner here are um, are unlikable, and that's a flaw. I think that is perfect for this character. And then he eventually grows to appreciate, especially Enola. Other people. Yep. Yeah. And that I... And that I like, and that he's willing to sacrifice himself for somebody for the first time in his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think and that's it's that's gross. such a contrast. Absolutely. It's such a contrast Absolutely. because she talks nonstop. Right. Right. <laughs> but he, he doesn't. But he doesn't know. Yeah, right. He doesn't know how to how to react to that sort of thing. He do, he's a loner. 
And he's a loner for, for a reason, because he's different. And here's the thing, Enola, an innocent child, appreciates him just for him, for nothing else. And But she can also see his flaws, and she makes sure that she expresses them. And that does annoy the Mariner, but... Um, <laughs> It's, and it's part of the charm, though, it's too. Absolutely. And I have no problem with the character myself, personally. I think I think the character's perfect, and I think his his growth is is perfect. Oh, yeah. When I've seen Waterworld, I never let other people influence their opinion of my of one of my favorite movies. <laughs> right, right. But I'm just it just seems like a really odd thing to say about this character when that's exactly what this character is. And sure, he's not Indiana Jones, and maybe he's not your typical hero, but why would you want that? I have no problem cheering for him, because he's our main character, and he doesn't have to be overly likable for me to cheer for him, and to be excited whenever anything happens to him, or, you know, I just, the two, like, there's two great shots at the opening, um, when he's escaping the smokers for the first time, and it's a, it's a helicopter shot. But it's first, it zoomed into his face, and then it zooms out, and you see him operating the, um, oh, oh, it's not a catamaran, it's a trimorans, that's it. And I get a sense of who he is also by the, by the music. He might be, he might be a loner, he might be unlikable, but the music is telling a different side where he can play the hero and he can be likable, and that's what's going to eventually happen to him later on down the road, so I think it's... It's an odd criticism that really doesn't ring true at all. Agreed. Because, I mean, we got to talk about that boat for a minute because that is an awesome boat. Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it, it is so cool because, like, how how the different parts move yeah. and how the sail comes out. <laughs> and it's huge. It's massive. And it makes him be able to go faster because it's so much larger than everybody else's and he can just escape. He can get away from from whatever's chasing him and he can like when he has Helen and Enola on there, he's like, "All right, move over here." And they like tip the boat <laughs> and he's like gliding off the boat and uh it's just so cool. I just I love every bit of that boat. Oh, it is, and I think it's it's great that it's um, it's a fully functional boat. This thing floats, and everything that you know, all everything works. All the little gadgets, and it's all there. And like I said, going back to again, practical effects. They built that thing to function that way, and everything that you know, Kevin or the Mariner needed to do in order to get away actually functioned that way. And I, I think it's genius. Absolutely genius. What a, It's a great vehicle and one that doesn't get a lot of respect, honestly. Agreed. Nobody talks about it. Yeah. It doesn't really have a name, it's, I guess that's why, but it's just, it's such a yeah. cool uh, movie vehicle. Yep, agreed. And it it's like, it's so sad when mm -hmm. it gets to the point where they torch the boat. Yes. And it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. it hurts. I agree completely. Because I love it's that like, boat. No, <laughs> yeah, it's such an awesome yeah. boat, and yep. it's like, no, you yep. can't do this. Yeah, I agree. It like cripples that character. Yes, absolutely. But one thing, it was interesting that 
James Newton Howard had practiced with Michael Kamen, who had referred to orchestral violence. And it was a lot of rhythm that isn't synthetic. It's not electronic. It's all orchestral. And like the golden ring is still writing big orchestral action music without the crutch of a loop attached to it. And James Newton Howard's style is old fashioned, but it's not lazy writing. And he didn't ever write lazily for this film, especially. Yeah, I agree. And even if there are loops, which there are occasionally, and especially in one key action sequence, it's always interesting because it just changes the tone of the scene, but there is still a lot happening in the queue, maybe just later on down the queue, because there's a point where we there's you hear the um, you hear this pulsating um, electronic beat, but there's still you know cymbal crashes and and orchestral rumbling underneath it, and it's always again like I said, it's moving forward, but that just that that kind of pulse really gets the blood pumping, and I think it's just a great device. And again, the the orchestral coloring, the instrumental coloring in this score is just superb and I again it's a replacement score and to be brought in and then you know have that type of inspiration right away uh, I'm just in awe at any composer that has to come in late in the game see a movie and automatically be inspired and then to write something this good and to write something this memorable but also something this interesting is just a it's a it's a it's a phenomenal phenomenal work any composer that can do that i tip my cap to them and well because i i think of not only Waterworld, but i think of like john debney's cutthroat island which at some yeah. point i want yeah. us to cover that because <laughs> yeah. that's an amazing piece of film work yeah and scoring it's high octane action music in action film I mean, it's a swashbuckling adventure. Yeah, and I mean, and it, and like it, like James Newton Howard said, and I think it was in the liner notes, it, it can be physically demanding as well because he says when he's coming up with the ideas and the music and this and that, and there's a lot of percussion in this that he's trying to come up with, he's slamming his hands down on his keyboards, on drums, on desks, and everything like that, and it becomes physically exhausting as much as it is mentally exhausting. And I just, and, and you know, even James Newton Howard says... Uh, at the end of the La La Land Records CD, you get to kind of hear a bit of behind the scenes of of the creation of the score, and it's like right at the end of the session, and he's he's talking about how this is one of the greatest experiences that he ever had. I'm kind of amazed I, uh, how emotional I feel right now. This has been a, a really uh, amazing project for me. Um, when Kevin asked me to get involved, I uh, like like all of us, I had heard lots of sort of troubling things about the movie and wasn't sure what to expect, but as it turned out, um, it's been the most glorious and, and wonderful experience of my career, so I, I have Kevin to thank for that, and I have all of you to thank for executing, uh, executing it so just incredibly wonderfully and, and uh, professionally as always. Uh, we've done 
we've done you know, over 40 movies together now in the last several years, and um, I've never enjoyed any of them uh, as much as I've enjoyed this one. So uh, you all just never fail to amaze me. I count myself the luckiest man on the planet. I have the greatest job in the world, and uh, so fortunate to work with all of you. And there's so many people here that make make me look good, um, and I just hope we all remember that. People like Brad Dector and Robert L. Hyatt, Jeff at Meiji and Sandy and everybody and all of you just, you know, I owe so much to you and thank you very much. And you can even hear the praise that Kevin Costner gives as well to the score and to the process and, and how much he actually enjoyed working on the movie for all of its faults and flaws. It was still a positive experience for both of them, and I think I think that's a fascinating um, aspect of this of this CD to just kind of get that behind the scenes um, listen at the creation of the score. Again, I find myself in this position of always getting so much uh, credit and attention. Um, uh, I don't know how that worked out, uh, but I do find myself front and center a lot. And uh, I want you to know that I do know the path that got me here, and I know the road that it takes to stay here, and that is uh, the way I believe the world works the best, and it's when you have the best people doing the best things uh, together. And uh, I do share this. Uh, um, I really share this moment with James. Uh, I've enjoyed these last seven, eight days been a difficult year in my life and um, this has been a really high highlight for me and uh, I hope you take a great amount of pride in, in what you've uh, been able to do uh, for me and because uh, I won't forget it and uh, it's just a movie no better no worse uh, it's not life and death it's not our children it's not our friendships but you brought your skill and your time. And uh, I've said it before, it's worth saying again. I, I, I truly appreciate it. And this uh, thought is, is very nice, not, will not be forgotten. Thank you. It's illuminating though. It's really illuminating because it kind of shaped even more action scores that were done even after this point. It was it was a, a stepping stone for action music and um, not to write loops. I mean, there still was loops made, but but being able to write music that really got to the heart of a person, you know what I mean? It it really was something you could feel deep inside. Well, you're still at a point in time where you literally just can't lay down a loop and then start writing over top of that and then say, look, I got my cue done. I mean, you've really got to think about everything that you're doing. And even if you're using electronics, it's just how you're going to use those to help reinforce the, the rest of the music. And that's what I find to be the most satisfying aspect of these types of scores and not the modern day scores. It's just you're finding that you have a bit more creativity and thought 
process going into the score. And again, I'm not saying that modern day scores suck. I'm just saying that the, the technology is, is allowing composers to, I guess, do whatever they want. But then I find that it could also become like technology can become, become a crutch. Whereas, oh, yeah. whereas For here, sure. because here it wasn't a crutch. Well, no, it added to it, 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 it helped him create what he was hearing in his head, but everything that he heard in his head had to either be written down or performed. And there wasn't a, a button to press to go, you know, string ostinato and drum beat and you know what I mean? And, and again, there's nothing wrong essentially with that, but I just appreciate the creative approach of actually coming up with something that isn't pre-programmed. And I know I could probably get a lot of, you know, oh, whatever. I mean, you're just like, you know, an old fart and you don't know what you're talking about. But I just, I just find that if I'm listening to this compared to some of the but modern that's not scores. The case. Well, yeah. And I just find this, I find this just this way more interesting, way more dynamic, way more creative. There's just a lot of work, a lot more work that went into this, I, I find. And again, that's not necessarily the, the hallmark for a great score, but I'm just, there's so much variety and there's so many unique sounds and unique things that James Newton Howard came up with, especially in this score, that just running a, a simple string ostinato that we've heard a million times, you know, and then laying over a, a long line horn melody and and slapping down four chords. That's great. Okay, anybody can do that. So, but like, as as a composer, I would hope that, and I keep harping on this, it's just... What can you do that is yours? And what can you do that can that can that can stretch your imagination, stretch your creativity? And and what I know that film music score, Well, it's and I know film music What makes this score special? Well, yeah, make it special, make it yours, make it your own, make it unique. Again, unique doesn't necessarily mean good, but and I and I know that scoring a film, you know, you're not on your own. The director and the producer, they got to have something. And then in this day and age, you've got to write demos and you got to write a lot quicker. And so, I mean, I, I'm kind of lost in my thought here, but I just find that listening to Waterworld as a written piece of music, then some of the, the modern tropes that we are hearing nowadays in a lot of uh, modern Hollywood uh, productions, that's plaguing. I think modern Hollywood productions and so, but I, I, it's a, it's a different era, different style. The directors want different things, but I think I appreciate somebody like Kevin Costner here. I mean, if you think about the projects that James Newton Howard worked with on Kevin Costner, I mean, some of the best work that James Newton Howard did was, was with Kevin Costner because he trusted him. He knew what he was going to get and he allowed him to do what he does without so much interference from what I've read. Yeah. He, he, let, he let him do what he does best. I mean, it's like one of the, one of the things that directors really can't do is talk music. They can sort of tell you a feeling, but they can't, you know, tell you exactly what chords or, you know, hum a theme or whatever. And so as a director, you really have to communicate and make sure you know exactly what you're going to get out of your composer. But then at, but then at that point, it's just, let your composer go and write because he also has to get inspired. And th and that's the other thing is that with music, it's, it's essentially out of the director's control. He cannot get in there and write the music for himself. 
unless he's musically talented and, and can do that. But I mean, Kevin Costner is not going to write his score. So it is a hard thing for a director or producer to do to say, all right, we're going to let you go off and do your thing. And hopefully you write something that is good enough for a movie. You know, it's and, and that's and that's a hard thing to do. And it's a hard thing to just let go because every other aspect of the making of the film is under your control. So it, it, you have to have a very, very trusting relationship with your composer, which again goes back to probably why Mark Isham was let go. Again, nothing against Mark Isham. I don't think there was a rift or tiff between him and uh, Costner. It's just Costner needed somebody that he can trust and somebody that he knew could get the job done and do what Kevin Costner was sort of hearing in his head and, and deliver the sort of score that he wanted. And that's what James Newton Howard did. And I like that. I like that type of that trust within a director and a composer. It's like Steven Spielberg and John Williams. I mean, Spielberg can listen to, he can listen to a piano theme and go, all right, I, I hear the piano theme. I kind of hear what, oh, that's the idea for the flying, you know, for E.T. or that's the idea for whatever. And okay, go ahead and write. But it's also, you know, film scoring so expensive. And what happens if, you know, they write something and you get to the scoring stage and you got 90 players there and you got all these, and it just doesn't work. I mean, that's another gamble you have to take. And with millions and millions of dollars um, at stake here, I mean, like I said, it's it, coming down to the music. I, as a director, I could see why it's probably one of the most uneasy moments of the creation of the film, but also mostly becomes one of the greatest moments because when you finally hear the music match to the, to the visuals and it works, I don't think there's anything like it uh in the in the creation of the film it's like once that that music is married to the visuals it's it, the, the film finally comes to life yeah and you get the blend of the music to the visuals and the and the sound and and how this is one of those films that well like when we were talking about jurassic park uh john williams really brought up the music at the right points. Uh, James Newton Howard did the same thing with Waterworld because he made you feel for the characters. He didn't go over overblown with the score, making it too loud. Um, he, he toned it down a, a few times, you know, and with the action sequences, you needed loud music to be able to carry that scene to really show the importance of the hero theme and the mariner's theme and even the smoker theme and how important that was to part of the story so it all revolves around each other but you know we've we've discussed this before that uh, it's so important to have those balances and a lot of modern scores, I still don't think, have a good balance. And I don't think you're wrong. I think that um, a lot of kind of big Hollywood blockbusters nowadays, it's just a wall of noise. I mean, yeah, you're 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 dealing with a lot more nowadays, um, especially in the sound mix. And good luck getting your score heard over top of all of that stuff. But it's. I find that, again, you know, the mixes back then, they weren't overdone. They were quite dynamic, and there were there was room for 
for music to breathe within the context of the movie. And I find that that also helped in making you, of course, feel certain ways. And, and, and that was so great because there were a lot of moments in this movie where all you are hearing is the music. And it's playing a huge role in pushing the drama forward. And uh, and also, I mean, there's a great uh, build-up to the Mariner's theme. It's that kind of galloping rhythm that you know that once that starts, and it takes a good, like, maybe 10, 15 seconds to get to the theme, but, you know, once that starts, you're like, oh, my God, something, oh, something's yeah. going to happen. Something's going <laughs> to happen. It's like, it's getting you ready, you know, for that climax. Yep. And it's so... Um, it's so good, and and James Newton Howard is very, builds very, and and very good at that. Yep. Yes, yeah. and so when I first heard that, especially in the the opening Smokers chase cue, like I'm like, where is this developing? To? Yeah. yeah, escaping the Smokers, and then all of a yep. sudden it's like it explodes this main theme, and they're like, oh man, this is great, this is dynamite. Again, letting music play a role in the drama and helping manipulate the orchestra, the, the the emotions and and how you feel, and that's what music does. And I'm just absolutely appalled when I'm hearing constantly nowadays where uh, anytime the music has something to say or or manages to make you feel something that that is wrong, and I don't understand that because if I don't understand it, I don't. It's the movies. Everything about the movies is uh, is emotional manipulation, and I'm not sure why music always gets struck down for being the only aspect that is manipulating your your emotions. <laughs> I, like, I don't really. I, it's cr- <laughs> yeah. I mean, why are you here then? Why are you watching this movie? Yeah. You're going to feel something no matter you what. You want to be able to feel yeah, something. Exactly. Otherwise, why go to the movies? Yeah. And so every time I hear that theme, or you know, hearing Deacon's speech, or hearing or go or the the swimming cues, I'm just it's there's so many great emotions that just wash over me and it's just that, that makes for a great time at the movies yeah yeah agreed it's, it's escapism it's like, you know what i mean it's like it's getting yep, away from your everyday life yeah. and you're like let's just drop into this world and have a good time and that's and everything about that is in james newton howard's score to water world it's a good time it is it is an excellent time and that's what we're gonna get into here with the cues The first cue that we're going to talk about is Escaping the Smokers, which we've 
really covered quite a quite a bit. And I mean, it it plays in full variation with this cue, and you get that that build up, and like you were talking about, you know, you you get that build up of the theme, and it's it's ramping up, it's amping up, it's getting faster, it's getting more beefy, and and that builds your anticipation. Oh yeah, something is gonna happen, and it's the perfect way to really think about how broad, bombastic, and like I mentioned before, that it's such a good swashbuckling adventure cue that doesn't stop. We hear it through the whole score. I mean, through a lot of portions in the score, it's brought back. And we hear it when Helen rescues the Mariner, when they encounter different difficulties, like the skyboat. And I think as we've discussed before, that this is James Newton Howard's finest action score ever, like that he's ever written. And I think hearing other cues that he's done, he, it's really good. Like he's one of the top film composers that I can think of. But this one is so impressive to me. And I think going back to the the thought of uh, Jerry Goldsmith for a minute, um, one thing that Jerry Goldsmith does um, is when he's writing a score, he's not a leitmotivic composer. And we brought this up during our legend conversation. Uh, so he doesn't necessarily attach themes to uh, characters or, or places. He essentially writes either an idea or writes the theme for for the whole entire overarching story or for the entire film itself that can be manipulated in various different ways. Like a, a theme could be played heroically or it could be played sad or romantically. And so what James Newton Howard has done here is he's basically given you the film's theme, which is attached to the Mariner, but it also goes through some incredible variations throughout the movie. But it's that one theme that really stands out um, as the film's main theme. So that sort of has a parallel to what Jerry Goldsmith uh, used to do in his scores. So what I think is great about Escaping the Smokers, it's the way it contrasts the cue that came before it, which is the main titles, which is a quite bleak, um, percussive, heavy, atmospheric cue um, to introduce the Mariner. But of course we get that, even that great uh, speech um, which explains what happened to uh, the Earth and over time, um, over top of the Universal logo, right? The Universal logo turns into Earth and then the water, you know, um, takes over the land. It's really an interesting way of opening the music. And then we get this great helicopter shot through the clouds and, and into seeing the, the Mariner's boat. The future. The polar ice caps have melted, covering the Earth with water. But again, very, very, very bleak. And, you know, I, I could see maybe that's where Mark Isham was going to go with it. But the contrast to that is that, oh, my God, is this going to be a really serious kind of downer movie? But then once uh, he, the Mariner just kind of kicks the boat into overdrive and all this stuff starts happening, the sails come out and... It just then it starts, it explodes, like I said, into that galloping rhythm, which kind of 
you're like, oh, what is that? And there's that build then to that magnificent shot of the Mariner, you know, driving the boat. And you get this incredible theme. It's just, just an earworm. And the great thing about it is also it's a it's a long line theme. And it has a kind of an A and a B side to it. And you can really play around with it and just kind of pick it apart. And you know that that's the theme. And so that's why I'm, again, talking about modern film scores. I'm totally against these composers who are writing, you know, like, oh, I've only come up with a three note theme because that's all I need for the character. And I'm like, give me a break. Um, the, you know how boring that one theme for three notes is going to get over the course of two hours if you're playing it all the time. Whereas here you get this much like the Raiders March um, or any other heroic theme written at the time. It's a really long sing song uh, type of theme that, again, it just sticks with you instantly. It's instantly memorable. There's no way that you can hear that for the first time in this film and not have that ingrained in your brain and listening to that throughout the whole film, but hearing snippets of or portions of it or different variations of it and not understand what that is or where that's from. And it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't get boring and it doesn't, and, and it doesn't also get annoying. And that's what I love about, you know, composers who can write a dynamite melody that is longer than three notes that can, you know, write it across four or five, six, seven, eight bars. And, and it's, it's a skill that I think a lot of composers don't have these days. And, and again, we're working in a, in a time or they're working in a time now where melody is dying. Um, I'm not saying that it's gone. Melody is still in film scores these days, but man, that much like feeling something in a film score, having a, a melody just seems like to be like the, the, the no, no thing to do. You can't have one. And I don't, I, I don't understand that either. Um, I don't understand it. So anyway, it's great that we, that this film got this type of fun adventure theme that, um, just works magnificently. Yeah. So now let's play escaping the smokers.
All right, so we've discussed one of the high points in the score uh, for escaping the smokers. Um, the next one I'd like to focus on is not a lot, but swimming. Um, the, the swimming cue, it's such a well-executed, simple piece of music. I think what James Newton Howard does with this cue alone is he brings in that choir and you get them in the background and they're just blowing right along with you. Being able to see Enola in the water and learn how to swim. And because she, the weirdest part is she is a character in a film that's dealing with a world covered in water and yet she doesn't know how to swim. Really seeing the influence of Jared Goldsmith, how we discussed earlier, how it rings true again, that like you can feel how this cue really stands out uh, as that uh, innocence. Yeah, what this cue does is essentially lets you relax a bit it lets you feel a different emotion uh, besides the bleakness of this world where you know you get a lot of sick people um, people on their own nobody trusts anybody just horrible um, psychotic crazy people I mean you don't know who you're gonna deal with and and you can't trust anybody and so yeah it, it is odd that Anola can't swim but then again she's probably been snatched up from land and never was taught how to swim and she was also most likely being kept in the shadows by Helen to keep her safe so there's never time for her to get into the water and so you know up to this point in this movie Helen and Enola are just absolutely annoying the mariner and uh, there is a scene uh, before this where you know, the Mariner has to dump some quote-unquote cargo, and uh, he was going to dump Enola earlier on. Um, but then there was a point where she got so annoying, I think it was because he was she was stealing all of his crayons and drawing on his boat that he decided to pick her up and toss her into the water, and that's where we find out that she can't swim. But soon enough, their relationship begins to blossom, and... The Mariner lets down his guard and now will offer his help to help uh, Enola swim. And it's a very sweet, sweet scene. And you can you can just tell uh, by looking on the faces of, you know, Enola and the Mariner, they're, they're enjoying their time together in the water. And, and she's, you know, not afraid of the water anymore and that she can can have some fun. And that's the first time that she's had fun, you know, on this boat since she's got on it. But I think that to represent that kind of free-flowing experience, James and Howard plays it really, really light and plays delicate instruments. Um, the harp and the woodwinds, very, very light strings. And... But it has a bit of a sense of wonder and at times will remind me of what he would eventually come up with in his mystical cues for uh, Atlantis. 
uh, the Lost Continent, and but there's also this wonderful glistening, twinkling sound about it. Again, it basically represents the way the water is, um, you know, reflected. The, the light is reflected off the water. It's really a, a wonderful synergy between the, the the score and and the visuals. But the way that ends. Again, just kind of showcasing a bit of innocence and and um, this kind of angelic sound. It's the extra color that he adds into it, which is the voices. It's that solo voice as well that is just so calming and so relaxing and so lovely that you're sort of letting your guard down a bit here. And I think that's what makes this cue so special and could get lost amongst all the action. But once you get to this point, you realize that, you know, James Newton Howard is, he's just on a whole other level here where he can also bring the bombast, but also can just bring it all down to some uh, simple or minimal instrumentation and write a gorgeous cue. Yeah, exactly. And so now, let's go ahead and play Swimming.
The next cue we should discuss is the skyboat because it encompasses, to me, more of the Mariner's theme along with the Smoker theme. And the Mariner's theme really turns into a hero theme in this piece, uh, how it has some synthetic didgeridoo and some more excellent uh, percussion pieces. And the thing about, I mean, we've discussed this <laughs> at length in this episode. James Newton Howard really amps up the action in this scene um, of how they're trying to get Enola and they're trying to get the, the boat. And even Helen kind of adds to that chaos because she goes ahead and shoots the the harpoon gun and it just wrecks havoc on the boat in some ways. But I just, I find this piece to be so action-oriented and it's just amazingly shot. I love it. Yeah, it's a great sequence. I think, again, just, you know, seeing a real, you know, skyboat plane, you know, flying around a real boat in the water and it wrapping itself around the boat with the possibility of crashing into it once the, you know, they get to the end of the rope and then uh, the mariner trying to, to free the rope so none of that happens. It's just, it is a race against time and I absolutely... I love this sequence, and especially when um, uh, the Mariner just gets slingshotted off from the top of the, the kind of the crow's nest there um, into the water. It's it's like, whoa, what the heck happened? Um, and and obviously he's really ticked off at that point. I think it's after this that he doesn't he throw um, or no, does he cut uh, their hair? Does he cut their yes, hair at that point? Yeah, their cuts hair, all their hair yep. off. Yeah. Because so, they touch stuff on his boat. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so... Um, it's um it's really interesting here, and I'm wondering whether it was because it was a time crunch for for James Newton Howard. But about the first two minutes of this cue is essentially a retread of his uh, opening the gates music uh, when Helen is freeing the Mariner. Um, that the cue after that, um, it, this two minutes plays at that point. So that had happened earlier on in the film. So he's basically reusing the music at this point. However. Uh, in the movie, at the point when the original music comes in, stuff that we haven't heard before, um, it's right when um, Enola is drawing um, what's happening. Like she, so she has the uh, she's drawing the boat attached to the plane by the harpoon, which was shot by Helen. So uh, both the pilot Jack Black and the Mariner are scrambling to free the boat, and so at that point, that's where. James Newton Howard has introduced this electronic beat underneath it, this running electronic, really fast ostinato that it, it almost feels like a heartbeat. And it's got a really interesting rhythm to it. But over top of that, you're getting, you know, splashing cymbals and hard hitting uh, percussion and, and just these wild dissonant horns, including a real kind of like minor off not as heroic playing of the Mariner's theme which I think is performed by orchestra and choir really awe-inspiring but not as like I said as 
as free flowing and, and as as um, uh, joyous or up tempo as we've heard the theme before. So it's um, yeah, it's it's a bit disappointing that we're hearing music that we've already heard before. But again, it could have been kind of because of the time crunch, and that's what was fitting in the, the sequence. Um, but it's the stuff about two minutes after this cue starts that it's really, really interesting blend of of electronics and, uh, you know, kind of real uh, dissonant, suspenseful uh, music along with a very interesting variation of uh, the Mariner's theme in which covers an absolutely thrilling and awe-inspiring sequence in the movie. Agreed. It's fantastic. So let's go ahead and play The Skyboat.
Next, what I'd like to discuss is the bubble. Now, this encompasses a sequence that I think, I mean, they say it's not computer generated, but I, it's got to be. <laughs> like, unless they have miniatures that they're using. Yeah, I'm sure it's, um, I'm sure it's like blue screen matched with some miniature photography. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it, it's all just like the worst possible case scenarios of like a submarine in the middle of a city. And this submarine is giant. Like, I don't know how that submarine is so large. Subs are uh, huge, man. But they yeah, are they huge. are. They are. They are. But it's like positioned next to a, a skyscraper. Yeah. It's and, not contrast. Uh, for, oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It is. But it's such a good scene because it fills you with this this awe. Because up to this point, we don't know still where he got the the dirt. We don't know where he got the dirt. And he uh, he says something to Helen and Nola's to stay up up on top to watch the meter, but He's like, you want to see dry land? I'll take you to see dry land. And so he has her get in the bubble and he takes her down. And it's just, it's like an awe filled cue to really show what happened to this world. And even though it's done with miniatures and everything like that, it still gives you this amazing sense of the underwater part of the world and of course the mariner doesn't need uh, a bubble he can breathe underwater <laughs> so obviously he's right there he's able to show what happened and how the world is like below them and that it never went anywhere that they just thought that it just wiped away because of all the water, but it was shown that it was a myth, dry land being a myth, but uh, it never left. So I thought that was really an eye-opening piece in the film, as well as in the music to illustrate that point. It's a key scene, um, along with a, a key cue in the score. It's it's an exposition scene where there is absolutely no dialogue. A lot is explained in this, what, how long is it, about three minutes long? Yeah, and, and you don't need it. You well, don't no, need and, the and, dialogue. And you're, and you're seeing it, and you can make up, you can you understand what's going on. And I think it's, I think it's absolutely fantastic, and it makes sense. Um, and I like how everybody assumes that he has seen dry land. But he's, of course, you know, using his mutation to his benefit and, you know, grabbing the dirt from the seabed, drawing that out and, and using that as, as, as currency to, to make his way throughout uh, Waterworld because, you know, dirt is, it's like gold. It's it's the most valuable thing, I guess, next to paper mm -hmm. um, in this world. Paper. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh, I think that, I love and hate that guy. <laughs> oh, he's fantastic. He's Canadian, by the way. He's from Saskatchewan. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. 
Um, and it's the queue begins like you you're not really sure what you're going to see and I think that is perfectly spelled out in the queue that James Newton Howard wrote like for the first little while um, it's very ominous where we see the the buildings uh, or no where we're seeing really nothing um, so it's like we're just in just in the water we're in the darkness and but then once we see a building under the surface and then get into the city um, for the first time and so we're seeing a shot I think from the side and we're seeing the buildings and them swimming through it that's when James Newton Howard really lets loose with a big almost religioso cue with these very very religious styled um, harmonies that are backed by you know chorus and then you hear this um, the, the arpeggio strings that really add a sense of wonder and mystery to the whole cue it's beautiful stuff and again it really kind of goes back to or not back to uh, jumping forward a few more years is something that he would write for the um, the crystal chamber music a lot of what is being explored here in in the water world yeah you'll get that in the crystal chamber queue from uh from atlantis so you get that awe and wonder and it's they do you know james newton howard does it so well but then the piece jumps right from this organic uh orchestral choral religious sound to these droning electronics these grinding electronics with this kind of pulse underneath it all that's uh, signaling the danger that waits above for Helen and the Mariner when they when they resurface. So um, really, it, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of emotions being expressed in this cue. It's, um, again, a, another masterstroke by James Newton Howard in this score. Oh, agreed. It's just, it's really well uh, constructed. And so... Let's go ahead and play the bubble.
I hope you enjoyed that cue. By the way, we forgot to mention about some of the samples that lend to the ethnic otherworldly sounds. And that really is highlighted a lot with like this gravitas of the massive orchestra and the apocalyptic choir, which includes Steve Pocaro of Toto, who of course did the score to Dune. Um, he designed some of the non-orchestral sonorities that gave the score its distinct personality. I always find that interesting is when you can refer to a score that it has its own personality. Because with James Newton Howard, I think that any of his scores, uh, really, they stand all by themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, James Newton Howard has his own voice. It's a distinct voice. Um, I mean, you can tell when he's writing a score, but he um, he's done so many different styles of scores. Um you know, some from a very percussive, heavy score to like Blood Diamond to, um, you know, a lighthearted comedy score to, to Dave, where he can write this gigantic fanfare for this, for Grand Canyon. Um, but then he can write something like Michael Clayton, very sparse. Um, but then he comes back and he does like, you know, giant Western, like, you know, Wyatt Earp, and he does Waterworld, and he can write a super influential score to The Fugitive. So, I mean, his voice is, is, is quite distinct. Um, you can definitely hear, you know, James Newton Howard-isms. and Like, you know when you're hearing a James Newton Howard score, but he's just not writing in, in one style, and he's willing to um, experiment, you know, go outside of his comfort zone, try something new, try something different, work with different uh, uh, people. Well, like... Pro- Parcaro. Well, yeah, and that's it. And, and 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 you know, maybe he wasn't able to come up with those ideas himself, and so he thought, "Hey, I know this guy who can who can do what I need, and let's bring him in." And I I got no problem with that. I mean, I, I find that if there's this myth that you know a composer working in a bubble is the best way uh, for a film score to be created, where I have really no problem with composers working in a team. I mean, if if you find that someone else can do something a bit better than you, even though maybe you've come up with an idea, but you're like, I don't know how to do that, so I know this guy who can orchestrate, you know, this cue in a certain way that I can't do or or whatever, then I have no problem with that. As long as the score comes out great, I don't care really who wrote what. Um, unless of course the people who are writing those cues, if they're not credited and they're just ghostwriting. I, I kind of have a problem with that. So give give credit where credit is due. So John Williams wants to write world-class scores, so he surrounds himself with world-class performers. And and that's just the way that he wants his music to sound, and that helps complement what he's thinking about in his head when he's writing writing the, the scores. So, you know, if like Hans Zimmer wants to surround himself with a you know, an Irish band for um, for an everlasting peace. Or, you know, a, a swing band in a league of their own or, or whatever. That's fine. That's the sound that he wants to get. But those guys are the experts. So why would you not collaborate with them? Anyway, I digress. But it's great. And so so now we can, because uh, that 
really was referring to the swimming cue um, because of the Asian sounding uh, flow. Of it's it's otherworldly music to an American mm-hmm. audience, right? Yeah. Or to a North American audience, right? That's 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 exotic. That's that's different, and I I have no problem with that. Yeah, it's great though. It really oh, it is absolutely beautiful, that. beautiful, unique colors. You know, mm-hmm. it's perfect oh, for sure. Yeah. So now we're we're getting to the crux of one of the best action pieces of music for the entire score. That the very cue that um, wore out my CD, uh, <laughs> and that is the Deacon's speech. And also the the cue that takes place right before it, arriving at the D's, that also is part of that, like part of the the skipping on my CD, uh, because I played it so much. But I love the percussion in this in this piece with the Deacon speech, the design of how it's presented it's one of the best cues i've heard in film music for me for an action piece of music uh the best action the best sound and the tempo it doesn't let up then it really brings you to a climax with the cue why aren't you rowing uh with the simple horns being played as we watch the mariner come closer and closer to the large opening in the ship. I just think uh, the whole sequence is just fabulous. And and Enola's like commentary is great. It's just awesome because you see him doing all this action on the boat and she's right there with him. Even though she's not in the same room, but she's right there with him explaining what he does. I love it. Yeah, this is where the Mariner becomes a, a legend folk hero. That's the way she, you're right. It's the way she's explaining him. And and also, we now have established a connection between Mariner and Enola. And she knows that he's going to come for, for her and, and save the day. I just think that this cue is just an incredible uh, montage cue. It just fits everything that's happening while the deacon is making his speech and, and the mariner is, you know, landing on the Exxon Valdez and then making his way through and trying to get to Enola. Uh, it's, it is just incredible. I remember the first time hearing this cue as well on CD and I'm like, what is this? It's a toe tapper. And I, I wrote in our notes here that it's like symphonic rock and roll. And the way I, I, I think, I, I would like to think that maybe this idea first came about on the guitar. They kind of played on low strings that like it would be like this great rock beat. You know what I mean? Just this, this and I'm like, that's amazing. I also think, and I correct me if I'm wrong or anybody out there, I, I think it's an odd meter theme or an odd metered piece as well. So what that does is keeps keeps you on edge, but also helps the piece move along. Again, something that Jerry Goldsmith does or used to do, um, you know, in his sleep. So 
it just has this, this great drive to it, just huge, expansive melodies. It's using the entire orchestra, the chorus, everything about it. It seems like it's coming to this incredible climax, and we're finally going to see this great big battle that's just going to end this movie in a spectacular way. And I, as I said earlier, I think that this battle on the Exxon Valdez should have been the, the last part of the movie because the stunts are absolutely incredible. It's a last second escape and it's so amazing, but it's just this cue that drives everything and gets you excited and set for what is going to happen next. And it's, it is, I, I, like he said, I first heard this and I just wanted to repeat it over and over again. It just has just this muscular drive to it. It's so, I mean, awesome. Really it awesome. Is. It really is. So now let's go ahead and play the Deacon speech.
with what we've covered today, we're down to our last cue for this episode. Um, It's called The Main Credits. Uh, It is just such a full orchestral masterpiece. And here's something that I wanted to bring out regarding this piece is it's not very long. It's actually fairly short, but um, there, of course, as we know, there are two versions of this film. There's the theatrical version, and then there's the television version that actually was the extended cut. Um, They created the DVD Blu-ray combo called the Ulysses cut. And um, basically, it's all the material that they used in the TV version, but it was all from the extended edition and all the added music cues and the extended um, music box cue. Uh, But with this, one thing that I don't think that we need, because we don't get it in the theatrical version, but the extended cut shows us where they're at. Like when they reach dry land, we actually see one of the last scenes in the film is a plaque that's sitting there on this giant or tall hill where they can see the Mariner leaving. And it's for Mount Everest. And um, I don't think we needed it, uh, but it's just, it's a moment in even the score and how like awe-inspiring the the effect that Mount Everest has on people and even even with the island look I'm like the island's massive and it's you know just right there a dry land you know <laughs> it's everywhere um, but uh, it's just a brilliant ending credits cue that just starts so slowly it 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 just flows so well and is so mesmerizing and comforting in a lot of ways for the uh part of the cue what's your thoughts eric um yeah it's um it's the most uh gentle version of the mariner's theme uh played so beautifully and and once you get into kind of those lower strings of the b part of the theme it's 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 so lovely so yeah this plays over top of just the kind of the main credits that pop up at the end and then once they start rolling and uh, fades to black um the credits where it's just just edited music from the score itself so this is the only original piece um that is played very very short but it's um uh it's just it's it's really lovely as we see the mariner who's decided that he in the theatrical cut misses his boat and just wants to get back on the water but then i think it's the extended cut where he decides that he wants to find more of his kind so that's why he goes off onto the sea again and and doesn't stay on the island you're right i we didn't need to know that it was everest i didn't care where it was it's like the the geography of this movie it just doesn't matter they found dry land and it's it's great so um but yeah the once this movie ends and you get this beautiful playing of i mean it could easily have been this high you know tempo um you know march 
but it's just so we got these the, the beautiful vista right from up above the hill and we're watching the the mariner go out to sea and it's just a gorgeous gorgeous um playing of the the film's main theme so i think uh they struck the right chord with this uh with this cue exactly and you know we can just really appreciate it so you know th- this is this is another another end to soundtrack alley and uh i've got to commend you and uh david casina and rob daniels and jason drury for doing legend that was a, a brilliant episode uh it was a bit long but uh i think it was really well done um you guys did a great job uh doing that for soundtrack alley and we gotta tell our listeners that they can enjoy all the fine programming on cinematic sound radio um check out my recent interview with craig saffin on soundtrackalley.com it's not about a film score it's about his own album called LAX that's EX um it's like a love letter to his growing up years in LA and uh it's really a unique interview and um it, you learn some stuff about him that he's actually really well he really does a good job at doing full scores that really have no breaks in them uh he told me about the phantom of the opera with lon chaney and uh that's one of the scores that he mentions uh that he's done and then we also want to look forward to rubbing our hands together eric (laughs) and this this one i want you to be involved with is stargate um jason (laughs) jason wants to do stargate and i'm like oh i can definitely convince eric to do stargate with us oh totally i could do (laughs) yeah that was another um eye-opening score when i heard that for the first time i was like where who what where when how Mm -hmm. this is so great yeah yeah it's that's that's gonna be an amazing film to talk to or talk about and also jason wants to talk about the last starfighter oh my goodness you're just so, talking my language here you're just speaking <laughs> you're, you're, oh man that is man if that is the quintessential 1980s film and score it's, it's just so full of hope and positivity and it mm-hmm. just makes you want to be the the last starfighter like oh man oh, yeah. I, rem- I god i uh, all of the emotions all yep. of the emotions watching well, that movie and, and like you can go back in my archive collection of my podcast and check out the interview I did initially with Craig Saffin um, and it was about The Last Starfighter but um, I have a little bird that's told me that Jason's doing well it was Jason himself because I got his <laughs> introduction to that um, through Craig so he's going to be interviewing yep. Craig yeah, uh, and talking about all his music and stuff, mm-hmm. and he's just—he's on cloud nine about oh, absolutely. it. Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> so he's really excited about that. And then after that, we're gonna talk Star Trek Generations. 
Oh, we're getting into the next generation movies, huh? Yep. Yeah. yeah. This is that blend. The blend well, of the original cast and the the next generation crew. I'm I'm excited to talk about it because I think Dennis McCarthy's score it gets wrongly lambasted by the film music community. I actually think it's a damn good score. And uh yeah, I mean it it, it does sound like portions of his television uh, writing for Next uh, Generation, but I think that there's a lot more uh, going on in the score that there aren't too many people that give it the credit that it deserves, so I'm more than happy to defend that score here on the program. Oh yeah, definitely. So any closing thoughts? Um, Anything that you want to add regarding uh, Cinematic Sound Radio today? Uh, no, it's just we are so, so busy, and there are so many things going on. Um, it, it, I, it, like, we got our 25th anniversary celebrations coming up in September. I'm still trying to figure out what we're doing for that. Oh, we got to do a roundabout. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. I'm not 100% certain on that one. But another thing is, um, if you can, and if you haven't joined the Cinematic Sound uh, Patreon, then please do. You can join us for uh, as low as $1 a month, but there's a lot of great perks um, out there, and there's going to be more that we're going to be adding to the tiers. So, you know, if you want to program your own show, you can do that. Um, If you want to listen to old FM broadcasts of Cinematic Sound Radio, uh, you can do that only on Patreon. Uh, There's the Discord server. We're not on it all the time, but uh, if you just want to chat with some great film music fans, then that's a place to go. Um, but yeah, if you just want to send us a couple of bucks and help support the program and pay for things, help pay for things like, you know, web hosting and, and things of that sort, then we really do appreciate the support. So it's patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. Thank you, Eric. And I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can check out his work at xanderscores.com. So to close the show, without further ado, we're going to play the last cue for Waterworld, and it's the end credits. So until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to TeePublic to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>